this podcast contains coarse language, dark humor, descriptions of violence, and controversial opinions. Listener discretion is advised. Throughout history, many different crimes have been punishable by death. Witchcraft, blasphemy, rape, murder, the list goes on. One that I haven't talked about yet is treason, betraying one's country. In acts including, but not limited to, trying to overthrow the government. Many spies in the World War II era were found guilty of treason and put to death. Like, a shocking amount. To my surprise, no Americans have been put to death for treason since the Civil War. In doing my research for this one, I found many people from many different countries who met their end after going against their government overlords. I hope you're ready for me to fuck up the pronunciation of some of these names. I dabble a bit in foreign languages. I'm fluent in German. I can read Adidas tracksuit languages such as Russian and Ukrainian. And I know a handful of words in Hungarian, Finnish, Romanian, Czech, and Danish but I've never quite been able to get rid of my thick American accent. I would make a terrible spy. This episode probably won't have a lot of last meals, but it's full of history and betrayal. According to Family Guy, which is the best source for any information, Ireland has more drunks per capita than people. They have a rich history of England trying to come in and take over. King Henry VIII made sure that Ireland declared him king in 1541, and an English policy known as plantation would see to the arrival of thousands of Scottish and English settlers. These people were Protestants, which was a stark contrast to the Irish Catholics. I know jack shit about religion, so it's all the damn same to me. There are Mormons and non-Mormons. That's about all my Utah raised brain can process. Whatever differences they had would lead to bloody battles over history, leading all the way up to what is known as the Troubles in modern era. Speaking of the Troubles, there is a fantastic podcast with that name if you're wanting more information. Catholics were discriminated against a lot in 17th century Ireland. They weren't allowed to own land above a certain value. They couldn't pursue higher education and better jobs. Hell, Catholic clergy were outlawed. England came in and fucked it all up, as they tend to do. People were tired of England's rule, but not much was done about it until a man named Charles Parnell became the leader of the Irish Home Rule Party. This would later become the Irish Parliamentary Party. Charles tried to get home rule, or self-government, in Ireland, but was unsuccessful. Think about the whole Greenland-Denmark thing. I'm not an expert on that, but it's my understanding that Greenland wants independence. I don't blame him a bit. I'm all for everyone governing their own selves. Charles was dedicated to his cause, and he was given the title of the Uncrowned King of Ireland. Ulster is a place in what is now known as Northern Ireland. Back in this era, it was majority Protestant. As you can probably imagine, these people favored British rule and were afraid of being a minority in an independent and very Catholic Ireland. A man named Sir Edward Carson led the Unionist Party, which was at odds with Charles Parnell and his Parliamentary Party. 
Carson wanted British rule and threatened violence to separate Northern Ireland if Ireland was to gain independence. In 1912, a Home Rule Bill was passed, but not made into law. When World War I broke out in 1914, the Home Rule Act was suspended. A lot of the Irish nationalists thought it would be best to support Britain in the war, and that by doing so, they'd get their independence after it was over. The man leading the Irish Parliamentary Party at the time, John Redmond, convinced people to join the British military and fight for them. There was a small minority of people who didn't trust the British government, though. My kind of people, definitely. This small handful of people would bring about one of the biggest events in Irish history, the Easter Rising. On April 24, 1916, two groups of rebel Irish nationalists known as the Irish Volunteers and the Irish Citizen Army stormed Dublin and took over two vital locations. The leader of the Irish Volunteers stood outside the General Post Office in Dublin City Centre and read out the Proclamation of the Republic, which declared Ireland independent from Britain. This led to a series of bloody battles with casualties on both sides as well as among the civilians. The Easter Rising ended on April 30th, just six days after it began. The Irish rebels surrendered. At the end, Britain had lost 120 people. The rebels lost 60, and there were also 180 civilians killed. Most people opposed this protest entirely, but public opinion changed after the British government started hanging people who had taken part in the revolt. All seven people who had signed the proclamation of the Republic were executed. These executions, as well as the imprisonment of over 1,400 Irish Republicans who weren't involved in the Easter Rising, pissed a lot of people off. The Irish Republican Army, also known as the IRA, waged a war on British forces from 1919 to 1921. A treaty was signed in December of 1921 that finally gave Ireland their independence. The British don't learn, do they? You'd think after getting their asses handed to them in colonial America, they'd stop fucking around. But I guess some people have to find out more than once to really understand. The same Government of Ireland Act of 1920 that created the Irish Free State also created the Parliament of Northern Ireland. Even today, they are two separate countries. Ireland is its own thing. Northern Ireland is a part of the UK. All because some people in the 1500s worshipped God differently and couldn't get along. Roger Casement was a well-traveled man. He left his home in County Antrim, in the north of Ireland, as a teenager and worked for a shipping company for a while. He eventually settled in the Congo Basin and spent most of his 20s there. He became a land surveyor and explorer and became familiar with West Africa. In 1892, he was recruited by the British Foreign Office to act as a consular officer. Roger would go on to serve in this role in many parts of Africa and South America. During this time, he wrote two reports on human rights violations that were being carried out by Europeans against the indigenous people of the Congo Free State and other Amazonian regions. In 1911, he was knighted by King George V for his second report. Feeling like something was amiss at home, Roger retired from the Foreign Office in 1913 and got involved in the Irish Revolutionary Movement. The last three years of his life had been spent in Germany and the U.S. 
he was trying to get support for the Easter Rising. On the day of his arrest, which was not long before the Rising, Roger had disembarked from a German U-boat that had been alongside a ship carrying weapons for the revolt. He was later found guilty of treason for his involvement in organizing the Easter Rising. Roger Casement was executed by hanging on August 3, 1916. In today's time, he is remembered for being a humanitarian. His role in exposing the gross injustices going on in Africa helped strengthen Ireland's later involvement with UN peacekeeping missions. Some people might not like the guy because he fought for the Irish rebels, but I believe he was a good man fighting the good fight. Freedom and independence are things a lot of people take for granted these days. He was asked if he had any last words, which he did, but only one. Ireland. His last meal was the host, so Jesus bread. You do you, boo. If you're wanting some other Irish entertainment, I have to suggest the podcast, Those Conspiracy Guys. Absolutely great crack, as the host puts it. Fucking love that guy. Mens Rea is another good one if you're wanting true crime rather than dick jokes and conspiracies. Most of us have some level of familiarity with World War II, at least those around my age and older. They still talk about it in history classes or have we moved on to irrelevant bullshit since I was in school? The totality of this war was immeasurable. I'm sure the same can be said about most other wars, but this one fucked the entire world up. It was a battle fought on many fronts. Japan, Germany, and Italy, all run by power-hungry jackasses at the time, were the Axis powers that instigated this war. Ultimately, it boiled down to Hitler wanting to invade Poland and annex it. What I didn't know until I started looking into this next guy is that Germany signed a non-aggression pact with the USSR in 1939 before the invasion. There was a secret protocol in this pact. It was agreed that Germany and the USSR would split Poland. Germany would get the western third of the country and the Soviets would get the other two thirds. Stalin, believe it or not, was considered to be an ally to the US, Britain, and everyone else fighting against Germany's tyranny. But he went behind our backs for a double cross, like commie bastards often do. Vladimir Vasilyevich Kurpichnikov. I don't think a more Russian name exists, to be honest. Was a general in the Soviet Red Army. He graduated from the Ulyanovsk Infantry Military Academy in 1925 and climbed the ranks from platoon leader all the way up to colonel in the 11th Rifle Division in Leningrad. Kropichnikov served as the chief of staff during the Spanish Civil War, which took place between 1936 and 1939. In case you're wondering what the fuck a Ruski was doing in Spain during a civil war, Spain was having a bit of a crisis, similar to Ireland's crisis in the last case. The Republicans were, ironically enough, in support of the left-leaning commie bastards running the Popular Front government of the Second Spanish Republic. And the Nationalists were, well, the conservative, traditionalist people who wanted Spain to remain a democracy and not be a communist shithole. 
Obviously due to the time, the Soviets supported the communist side of this war. That's why Kropichnikov was there. But enough about Spain. Maybe I'll get to talk about them again when I do the war crimes episode. For his service during the Spanish Civil War, Kropichnikov was awarded with the Order of the Red Star. He would later be named commander of the 43rd Rifle Division. In the Winter War, which was Finland versus the USSR, Kropichnikov was awarded with the Order of the Red Banner. After this war, he went on to further study at a military academy. I don't need to explain much about World War II. It was bloody. It was terrible. Many forces joined together to beat the Germans. The Winter War began just after World War II started and ended only three and a half months later in 1940. Essentially, the Soviets wanted Finland to give up some land on the border in exchange for land elsewhere, claiming that they needed to protect Leningrad. Finland refused. The Soviets invaded. Believe it or not, there were some Finnish supporters of the Soviet Union. A communist government had been installed, and it seemed as though there was some fuckery going on that hinted at the USSR wanting to take all of Finland. If you're interested, Count Dankula does a great video about a Finnish guy nicknamed White Death. He was a sniper in the Winter War, and he fucked some shit up. I will throw the link in the description. The Winter War ended in 1940 with the Moscow Peace Treaty being signed and Finland giving up 9% of its territory. Though they won the war, the Soviets lost a ton of soldiers. It was because of their less-than-stellar performance that Hitler decided it would be a good idea to attack the USSR. Our friend Mr. Kropichnikov was serving as a general in World War II when he was captured by the Finns at the Battle of Porlampi in September of 1941. He was taken to the village of Karasalmi to be interrogated before being moved to the Finnish army headquarters in Mikeli. The intent of the Finns was to use Kropichnikov as a propagandist tool because they were aware he had negative opinions about the Soviet regime. Russians are stubborn motherfuckers. He wouldn't agree to work for them. Because of this, he was moved to Sotavankilairi Uksi, Finnish for Prison Camp 1. I guess they didn't put as much effort into naming their prison camps as the Germans did. This camp held more than 3,000 Soviet prisoners, a third of which were officers. Other prisoners would go on to say that Kropichnikov was offered the role of commander of the Russian Liberation Army, which was basically a group of Russians fighting for Germany, but he refused. Many pictures were taken of Kropichnikov in an effort to spread propaganda. One of the most famous ones shows him lighting his interrogator's cigarette. Vladimir Vasilyevich Kropichnikov was executed by gunshot on October 10, 1950. After the war ended, he'd been sent back to the Soviet Union. He was held at a prison camp before being moved to a prison in Moscow. Apparently the Finnish propaganda worked, and the Soviets thought he'd turned on them. I can't find anything on his last words. Sukhobliat, maybe? Nothing available on his last meal, either. Probably some Rasolnik. Pickle soup for you uninitiated. That shit is delicious. And a shot of vodka. And yes, I enjoy Russian food and cook it as frequently as I can. I have exactly 0% Russian blood flowing through me, but I definitely have a fondness for Adidas tracksuits, pickle soup, Russian wrap, and vodka. World War II 
Eastern Europe was obliterated by it. Many of these smaller, Adidas tracksuit-adjacent countries had to pick a side as well. A woman by the name of Milada Krolova was born in Prague on Christmas of 1901. At the time, Prague wasn't a part of the Czech Republic. That didn't exist yet. It was technically Austria-Hungary. By the time World War I was coming to a close, Milada was 17 years old. As many activists do, she got involved at a very young age. She was expelled from school for participating in an anti-war protest. She'd go on to finish out her secondary education in what was now Czechoslovakia and study law at Charles University in Prague. Sticking to her roots, I like that. Milada was a feminist back in a time when feminism meant something. She was greatly influenced by Frantiska Plaminkova, who founded the Women's National Council. This organization helped to educate women about their rights and work toward an equality-based society. You know, things that matter. Milada married a man named Bogoslav Horak in 1927 and became Milada Horakova. They had a daughter together in 1933. Starting in 1927, Milada worked for the Prague City Authority in the Welfare Department. She focused on social justice issues and pushed hard for women's rights and equality. If she lived in today's time, I'd be laughing at her. But because she's from an era where such things were real issues, I have to say, I actually admire this woman. Probably rolling over in her fucking grave seeing the things women whine about today. In addition to her feminist activism, Milada was active in the Czechoslovak Red Cross. In 1929, she joined the Czechoslovak National Social Party, which, despite the name being almost identical, was vehemently against German National Socialism. It all sounds like commie bullshit to me, but whatever. Germany invaded Czechoslovakia in 1939, and Milada, being the way she was, decided to get involved with the underground resistance movement. In 1940, she and her husband were arrested by the Gestapo and interrogated. Why? Because Milada was so involved in politics before the war. She was a walking red flag to the Germans. She was eventually sent to the Theresienstadt ghetto in Terezin before being moved around to a handful of German prisons. Four years after her arrest, in 1944, Milada had a court appearance in Dresden. The prosecution sought the death penalty for a crime that isn't even listed. I guess being a non-Nazi is really the only crime that one can commit in 1940s Europe. She was found guilty of whatever it was and sentenced to death. A Dresden court would later commute her sentence to a staggering eight years. She was sent to a concentration camp, probably in the hopes that the harsh conditions would cut that eight years short, but the US Army later liberated her from this camp. In 1945, Milada finally got to see her husband again. The democratic president of Czechoslovakia at the time convinced her to come back to the National Socialist Party. Again with that. Confusing ass commie nonsense. She became a member of parliament in 1946 and held that position until the communists took over in 1948. Milada joined a group known as the Union of Friends of the Soviet Union but later realized that Czechoslovakia had to align itself with the West to fight Stalin's regime. The commies took over in February of 1948, and Milada tried desperately to get her fellow citizens to support the democratic president. 
Unfortunately for her, she was expelled from her many activist organizations on the day the communists gained power. Milada was a strong woman, no doubt. She stayed in Czechoslovakia despite having an opportunity to leave the country and start fresh somewhere else. She fought for democratic ideals. She worked with illegal political organizations and kept contact with exiled politicians, fighting for what she believed in. In September of 1949, she was arrested on a fabricated charge of trying to overthrow the government. Milada was beaten and psychologically tormented by the communists, but she didn't break. Her trial began on May 31, 1950. This trial was meant to be a show, much like the great purges of Stalin's regime. Soviet advisors supervised this trial and demanded that everyone accused of going against the Communist Party be put to death. Every defendant in this trial was forced to read from a script. This whole charade was to be broadcast over the radio. But Milada was a strong woman, and she refused to give in to their demands. She instead took the opportunity to defend herself. She and three others were sentenced to death. Milada Horakova was executed by hanging on June 27, 1950. Many people opposed her execution, including Albert Einstein, who sent a telegram appealing for clemency for her and her co-accused. Her husband hid for two months after she was arrested, but eventually made his way to the U.S., where he died in 1976. Their daughter was raised by Milada's sister Vera, but came to the States to be with her father in 1968. Milada was cremated, and the whereabouts of her ashes remain unknown to this day. There is a symbolic grave for her at a cemetery in Prague. As of 2004, June 27th is recognized as the Day of Remembrance of Victims of the Communist Regime. About time, someone gives them some thought. I can't find anything on Milada's last meal, if she had one. I don't really know anything about Czech food. It's probably good, though. Her last words, translated to English, of course, were, I have lost this fight, but I leave with honor. I love this country. I love this nation. Strive for their well-being. I depart without rancor toward you. I wish you. I wish you. I could do an entire episode on just people executed by the Soviet Union. Hell, I could probably start a second podcast about them and never run out of content. The Soviets would execute you for looking at them wrong. But my goal here is to give you some variety. Yes, all these cases end the same way, but the depravity of government is a spectrum. Believe it or not, Canada wasn't always a leftist shithole. There was a time that capital punishment was used. I know, I'm just as shocked as you are. Louis Riel was born in a one-room house his grandparents owned near what is now Winnipeg, Manitoba in 1844. He was the oldest of 11 kids in a very well-respected family. His father was Métis. If you have no idea what the fuck I'm talking about because Canada is a mystical land of make-believe with maple syrup money and hockey sticks used to clean off cars, Métis basically means European indigenous mix. In Louis's case, his father was French and Chippewyan. His mother was the daughter of two of the first European settlers in Red River. 
Louis started school when he was seven and went on to attend Catholic schools at the age of 10. He was a hard-headed young man, but still considered a good student. He studied languages, philosophy, and science. Louis's father died prematurely in 1864, which caused him to lose all interest in the priesthood he'd become involved in and drop out of college. For a while, he continued studying at the convent of the Grey Nuns, but this didn't last long because he couldn't adhere to their rules. Louis struggled with the death of his father and left for the U.S. in 1866. He spent some time in Illinois and Minnesota before returning home to the Red River Settlement in 1868. Red River had a population consisting of mostly Métis and First Nations peoples. When Louis came back from his American adventure, it became clear to him that tensions had grown due to an influx of white Protestant settlers from Ontario. These racial and religious tensions were one thing, but the Métis people were getting more anxious as a surveying party arrived in 1869 to check Red River out and develop townships along the river. Louis Riel denounced this survey in a speech and rallied his fellow Métis people. They disrupted the work being done by the surveyors. Their group was known as the National Committee of the Métis, and Riel served as secretary. A man named John Bruce was their president. Louis was summoned by the Hudson's Bay Company to explain his actions and told them that any attempt by Canada to take control of their land would be contested unless they first negotiated with the Métis. A man named William McDougall was the Canadian Minister of Public Works. He was appointed as Lieutenant Governor and tried to enter the Red River Settlement on November 2, 1869. He and his party were met with resistance and turned back near the U.S. border. This very same day, Louis Riel led his Métis people to seize Fort Garry, which was a trading post owned by the Hudson Bay Company. On November 6th, Louis invited the white settlers to have a discussion with Métis representatives about how to move forward. The convention took place on December 1st. Louis presented a list of demands that needed to be met in order to form a union between the Métis and the Anglophones. Most of the people in attendance sided with the Métis point of view, but there was a very small group of pro-Canadian settlers who began organizing in opposition. A leader of this minority, John Christian Schultz, recruited about 50 men and was able to strengthen his home and his store. Louis had his home surrounded, and before long, the Anglophones had surrendered to the Métis and were imprisoned. Soon after, a provisional government was formed by the Métis National Committee, and Louis was appointed president. Meetings between Louis and an Ottawa representative by the name of Donald Alexander Smith took place in January of 1870. These meetings went nowhere, so Smith took his case to the public. Large meetings were held later in the month, and Louis suggested they form a new convention of French and English settlers to consider Smith's ideas. A new list of rights was presented to the Ottawa delegation on February 7th. Louis and Smith both agreed to send representatives to Ottawa to negotiate that list. Canada, being Canada, couldn't just leave things how they were. They continued to plot against the provisional government and intended to overthrow Louis Riel. They suffered a major setback on the 17th of February when the Métis people arrested 48 of their men. Two of these men were Major Charles Bolton and Thomas Scott. Bolton was found guilty of interfering with the provincial government and sentenced to death. 
He was later pardoned, but Scott saw this as weakness. He hated the Métis. Scott fought with his guards on many occasions and ended up being charged with insubordination. He was found guilty and sentenced to death. Louis Riel was repeatedly asked to commute the sentence, but in his words, I have done three good things since I have commenced. I have spared Bolton's life at your instance. I pardon Gaddy, and now I shall shoot Scott. Thomas Scott was executed by a Métis firing squad on March 4, 1870. Over time, many have speculated about why exactly Louis chose to spare Bolton, but execute Scott for what honestly seems like a lesser crime. His justification for this was that he wanted to show the Canadians that the Métis needed to be taken seriously. Protestant Canada definitely got the message and swore revenge on Louis for this action. So that's where our story ends, right? A citizen being executed by a government? In April of 1870, the representatives of the provisional government arrived in Ottawa. They initially ran into hostility because of what had happened with Thomas Scott, but were soon in direct communication with the Prime Minister of Canada, John A. Macdonald. Both parties agreed on several of the demands in the list of rights drafted by the Métis. Language, religion, and land rights were included in these. Their agreement went on to form the Manitoba Act, which admitted the province of Manitoba into the Canadian Confederation. Later on after this meeting in Ottawa, a military expedition was sent out to Red River under the guise that it was an errand of peace. Louis would later find out that the Canadian militia had been sent to lynch him. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit, as this episode already has enough history in it to fill a textbook. In the fall of 1878, Louis Riel went back to St. Paul, Minnesota to visit some family and friends. By this time, things were changing for the Métis. Their supply of bison was dwindling, more settlers were moving in, and their land was being sold off. Louis, like many other Red River Métis, headed west in pursuit of a new life. He made his way to the Montana Territory and became a trader and interpreter. Noticing that alcohol was having a negative impact on the Métis in the area, he made an unsuccessful attempt at disrupting the whiskey trade. By 1881, he had gone to the Dakota Territory and met a Métis woman named Marguerite and married her. They went on to have three children together. Jean-Louis in 1882, Marie-Angelique in 1883, and another boy who was born in 1885 and died the same day. Louis got involved in the politics of Montana and campaigned for the Republican Party. He went so far as to bring a lawsuit against a Democrat for rigging a vote. Unfortunately, he was also accused of bringing in British people to vote in the election. Fuck the duopoly, for real. Louis applied for U.S. citizenship and was naturalized on March 16, 1883. The Red River Métis were suffering, and many headed west in search of a better situation. The Canadian government turned their backs on them pretty badly during this time, reducing government assistance and failing to live up to the treaty obligations. The Métis wouldn't have needed any assistance and could have easily gone back to hunting and farming, but because of issues surrounding land claims, these were not options for them. Meetings were being held to discuss these issues, but their complaints fell on very deaf government ears. 
as they usually do. During one of these meetings, it was decided that they should call on Louis Riel to come back and help them. As you can probably guess, Riel was in favor of their cause and wanted to use the power he was given to pursue his own land claims in Manitoba. After his return, Métis and Anglophone settlers got a good impression of him. He spoke of moderation and using reason during his negotiations. Religion would ultimately be the downfall of Louis Riel. The clergy began to distance themselves from him and warn him not to mix religion and politics. Despite the wavering support for Louis, he pushed forward and sent a petition drafted by the Métis Committee to the government in Ottawa. The Prime Minister, John MacDonald, denied ever seeing this petition, but his Secretary of State reported that it had been received. Louis wanted to go home to Montana, but decided to stick it out until he got an answer from the government. He was left with a lot of free time, and he used it to pray, obsessively. The mental illness he had previously battled with was starting to creep back in. On February 11, 1885, he finally heard back from the Canadian government. They said they'd take a census report of the Northwest Territories and form a commission to investigate grievances. A lot of the Métis saw this as nothing more than another tactic the government was using to delay actual progress. They wanted to fight the government, with weapons. Louis became the leader of this faction, but lost almost all the support he had. A few hundred Métis stuck by his side and fought alongside him in the rebellion that would come. On March 21st, demands were made that Fort Carleton be surrendered. A Métis military leader named Gabriel Dumont was leading a force near Duck Lake and happened upon some Canadians from Fort Carleton. This began the Battle of Duck Lake. Police were sent up there and the rebellion commenced. The Canadian Pacific Railway was nearly complete by this time and Eastern Canadian troops were able to arrive quickly. Dumont wanted to use guerrilla warfare to force the Canadians to surrender, but Louis wanted to concentrate on his City of God. Maybe he should have let the military guy handle the military things instead of sticking his religious nonsense into it. On May 15th, Louis surrendered to the Canadian forces. The rebellion was an absolute failure for the indigenous peoples. Louis was tried in Winnipeg in July of 1885. Because of the possibility of having an ethnically mixed and probably sympathetic jury, the trial was moved to Regina. I hate the name of this place. It looks like Regina, and it sounds like vagina, and I just... I, I can't. Goddamn Canada. Figure out better names for things. Louis ended up with a jury of six Anglophone Protestants. He gave two long speeches in his defense during his trial, also affirming the rights of the Métis people. His lawyers tried to argue that he was insane, and therefore not guilty, which... You know... I kind of think they had a point, but Louis rejected this. Louis Riel was executed by hanging on November 16, 1885. One juror later said, We tried Riel for treason, and he was hanged for the murder of Scott. Louis would express his regret for not taking the insanity defense. He tried to show him he was crazy, but it didn't work. He appealed and asked for a retrial or a commuted sentence. John MacDonald, who you'll remember was the Prime Minister at the time, made sure that Louis' sentence was upheld. In his words, 
He shall hang, though every dog in Quebec bark in his favor. When asked if he had a final request, he said he wanted an extra ration of three eggs. I guess we'll count that as his last meal. His last words are debated, I guess. Some sources say it was the Lord's Prayer, while another one claims they were. I have nothing but my heart. I have given it long ago to my country. I know this episode has been full of other countries and their shenanigans, but I'm not letting the US get off easy. This next case is short, but it's probably one of those that gives abolitionists fuel for their fire. William Bruce Mumford was born on December 5, 1819 in North Carolina. His early life was pretty insignificant in the grand scheme of things. He owned no slaves, had very few possessions, and didn't volunteer to fight in the Civil War. He liked to gamble and he was married to a woman named Mary. Pretty average 1800s American, if you ask me. On April 25, 1862, ships from the Union Navy came into Confederate New Orleans. Officers from this ship were sent to deliver a message to the mayor requesting that Confederate flags be removed from the Custom House, the Mint, and City Hall. They were to be replaced with U.S. flags. I know we're walking into your house, but I want my decorations hung up instead of yours. Good lord. Mayor John T. Monroe refused to honor this request, saying that it was beyond his jurisdiction. The captain of one of these ships sent Marines to go raise the U.S. flag over the mint anyway. While this was being done, New Orleans locals began to gather. They were pissed. The Marines told them that the ship would fire on anyone who tried to remove the flag. A group of seven people, including William Mumford, decided to take the matter into their own hands and remove it anyway. They were shot at, and William was hit by a broken piece of a brick. Other citizens cheered him on as he carried the flag to the mayor at City Hall, even going so far as to tear the flag as he walked. Major General Benjamin Butler was the commander of the Union ground forces. A few days after the incident, he heard about it and made the decision to arrest William. He claimed to see William wearing a piece of the flag during a speech given by the mayor. Punishment was necessary. The Union Army occupied the city on May 1st, and William was arrested. He was charged with high crimes and misdemeanors against the law of the United States and the peace and dignity thereof and the law marshal. Hell of a crime. They don't make them like they used to. William was tried before a military tribunal on May 30th and convicted. William Bruce Mumford was executed by hanging on June 7, 1862, over a flag. I understand that tensions were high during this time, but goddamn, they came into his territory and covered up his flag. He has every right to protest. We kind of fought a war about that, like a hundred years before this happened. He didn't hurt anyone, except the pride of the military officers and possibly that flag. No one died. No one but him was even injured. And he had to hang for it. I don't give a shit that he was part of the Confederacy. He had the right to freely express himself. What a damn shame. 
His last words were used to tell the crowd witnessing his execution to act justly to others and to raise your children properly, and when they meet death, that they meet it firmly. I can't find anything on his last meal. So there it is, treason, something that was used to execute political dissidents of the past. People are still charged with it in today's time, but they don't hang for it. Just some prison time. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend. Leave a rating or a rumble and share my shit all over the internet. You can get me on Instagram at lastmealpod. I'll be back next week with an episode all about Illinois. I'm going to leave you with a quote from a man named John Harrington this time. Treason doth never prosper. What's the reason? For if it prosper, none dare call it treason. See you next time.